Chapter One of Tales of the Royal Irish Constabulary. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Wales. Tales of the Royal Irish Constabulary by Unknown. Chapter One The Informer in many parts of the west of ireland one finds small mountain farms of from five to twenty acres generally consisting of twenty-five per cent rock twenty-five per cent heather and the remainder of indifferent grassland on such a farm a peasant will rear a large family and how it is done is one of the mysteries of ireland but done it is and often patsy mulligan was one of a family of ten brought up on one of these farms until he was seventeen when his father told him that it was time he thought of keeping himself and incidentally of earning some money for his mother patsy quite agreed with his father but soon found that it was much easier to talk of getting work in such a poor district as clunala than to get it in the end patsy made up his mind that the only thing to do was to go to england in search of work and one cold winter's morning he set off from his home in company with three other lads from the same townland to walk the fifteen miles across the mountains and bogs to the nearest railway station at ballybor arriving in england they made their way to a town in yorkshire where one of them had a brother working in a coal mine and within three days of leaving his home in ireland patsy found himself a yorkshire miner hardly had he settled down to his work in the coal mine when the war broke out followed by a rush of young miners to enlist amongst others patsy mulligan and before he realized what he was doing he was a full private in a famous yorkshire regiment patsy had however enlisted in the name of murphy hoping to keep his people in ignorance of the fact knowing it would break his mother's heart if she knew he was fighting patsy thoroughly enjoyed the training and within seven months of enlisting embarked for france and after a few weeks pleasant life in billets gradually moved north until finally the battalion took over trenches in the famous salient of ypres a great contrast to patsy's home in the west of ireland there happened to be in the battalion a young irish subaltern by name anthony blake and when blake told his company sergeant major to find him a servant an irishman if possible patsy at once volunteered for the job and between the two young irishmen there soon sprang up a friendship through the common bond of danger and discomfort after some time patsy learnt through one of the boys with whom he had first crossed to england that his mother was dangerously ill and that she had repeatedly written to patsy to come home and see her before she died but had naturally received no answer in his trouble he appealed to blake and that night found him waiting at poppering station for the leave train with a return warrant to ballybor in his pocket on his arrival at ballybor he set out on his long fifteen-mile tramp to his home at clunala and late on a summer's evening the family of mulligan was startled by a british soldier in full marching order walking into their home before his mother died she made patsy promise that he would not go back to france and that he would stay at home and help his father to mind the other children it is hard for a son to refuse his dying mother and doubly so for an irish boy when his mother's funeral was over patsy buried his uniform and equipment in a bog-hole at night 
but his rifle he hid in the thatch of an outhouse, and it was given out in the neighborhood that he had been discharged from the army as medically unfit. After the usual time, Patsy was posted as a deserter in his battalion. Blake found a new servant and forgot all about his late one, while Patsy settled down to work with his father, and the memory of Blake and the British Army faded from his mind. Though wounded three times, Blake was one of the lucky men to return home to Ireland at the end of the war, and at once set about looking for a job. The son of a country doctor in the south of Ireland, at the outbreak of war, he had just left school and had not had time to settle on a career. But if in England it was hard for ex-officers to get employment, in Ireland it was doubly so, and Blake soon found that it was next to impossible for a man who had worn the king's uniform to get any work or appointment the power of sinn fein was beginning to be felt in the land and though many people would have gladly employed men returned from the front they dared not at last when he had quite given up hope he received by post an offer to join the newly formed auxiliary division of the royal irish constabulary and gladly jumping at such an offer was soon in training at the depot in dublin after a tour of duty in the south the authorities offered him a cadetship in the r i c and in the course of two months blake found himself the district inspector at ballybor at this time the r i c after about as bad a hammering as any force ever received were beginning to get their tails up again and whereas previously no policeman dared show his face outside his barracks after dark they were now occasionally sending out strong patrols at night-time to the great concern of the local sinn feiners who for a considerable time had had things all their own way in the south and west the police district of Ballybor is, like many others in the west of Ireland, large, consisting chiefly of mountains, bogs, lakes, and a few scattered villages, some of them hidden away in the mountains, an ideal district in peacetime for a D.I. who is fond of shooting and fishing, but in wartime a hard district to control with the small force of police at a D.I.'s disposal previous to blake's arrival all the barracks in the district had been vacated with the exception of ballybor and grouse lodge a small barrack at the foot of the mountains in the cloonalla district and as each barrack was vacated it was blown up or burnt by the local volunteers in all former rebellions in ireland the government have found that to get information it was only necessary to pay money sometimes it did not cost much and other times they had to pay generously but always money produced information and at the beginning of the sinn fein trouble the government naturally assumed that money would produce the informers as before but this time they were wrong and it was only when the government were at their wits end by a lucky chance of finding important papers on a man who was shot at night during a military raid on a dublin hotel that at last they received the information which enabled them to grapple successfully with sinn fein there is no doubt that the originators of Sinn Féin had read their country's history carefully, and were determined that this time there should be no informers, and to this end they organized a reign of terror throughout Ireland, such as few countries have ever seen at any time in history. Their chief obstacle was the RIC, and once this force was reduced to a state of inactivity, they thought they had broken it for good and all, their task appeared comparatively easy 
every man woman and child in the south and west of ireland knew that if they gave any information to the police they would be shot and shot they were when blake took over his duties at ballybor he found that the police had no source of information whatsoever with the result that each attack on a barrack and every ambush of a patrol came as a surprise to them so great was the reign of terror in the ballybor district that no person dare speak to a policeman and the shopkeepers were afraid to serve one even with the necessities of life blake quickly realized that if he was ever to get the upper hand in his district he must discover some source of getting information and find it quickly before the whole population were driven to join forces against him one of Sinn fein's principles has been that the fewer who know the fewer can tell and as a rule there has only been one man in a district usually the local captain of the volunteers who has information of coming events and blake knew that his only chance of reliable news lay with this man and with him alone about the only information which his men could give him of his area was that a young man who lived in the townland of clunala named patsy mulligan was the captain of the local volunteers and that his house was close to the barracks at grouse lodge so he determined to go out to grouse lodge barracks and stay there until he had either come to terms with patsy mulligan or saw that it was hopeless on a fine winter's morning blake set out from the barracks at ballybor in the crossley tender with an escort of six police the most he dared take with him for fear of weakening the ballybor garrison it was market day in the little town and all along the road to grouse lodge they met the country people coming in some in horse carts others in ass carts and the poorer ones on foot but not one of them would speak to or even look at the police the people on foot even getting off the road into the fields directly they caught sight of the police car approaching on learning from one of the constables that mulligan's house was not on the main road to grouse lodge barracks but on a by-road blake ordered the driver to go by this road and when he came to mulligan's house to stop the car and pretend that something required adjusting in his engine after a time the driver stopped outside an ordinary thatched cottage on the side of the road and as blake had expected the inhabitants came to the door to see who it was the first to appear was a young man and as the constable whispered to blake that he was patsy mulligan blake nearly shouted for joy for he saw that the man was none other than murphy his former servant in france and a deserter from his majesty's army in the field at once before patsy could get a good look at him and possibly recognize him blake ordered the driver to go on to the barracks as fast as the bad road would allow them the question now was how to get hold of mulligan alone and this was settled by the information which a constable at grouse lodge was able to give it appeared that this plucky constable had for some time past been in the habit of slipping out of the barracks by the back entrance at night in plain clothes and returning before daybreak he had discovered that mulligan was in the habit of meeting a girl nearly every night at a certain lonely spot about a mile from his house and from overhearing their conversation had found out that patsy wanted to marry this girl but that she had refused to marry him until he had enough money to take her out of the country and to buy a small farm in america 
on questioning this constable blake was able to get a detailed account of mulligan's movements since the time of his desertion it appeared that for a considerable time after he came back he hardly left his home at all contenting himself by working on his father's farm and it was not until the Sinn fein volunteers were started in the district and mulligan was elected captain that he appeared in public about the same time there was a report in the neighborhood that patsy mulligan was courting a girl called bridgie o'hara who lived in the clunala district also that another man in the same townland with money was doing his best to make her marry him bridgie had two brothers in the royal irish constabulary and as the shane fan movement grew stronger and the resistance of the government weaker the volunteers started to boycott the o'hara family so savage had the boycott become lately that not a soul dared speak to them and it was only by going to a town several miles away that they were able to obtain food as soon as it was dark that night blake and the constable both in plain clothes slipped out at the back of the barracks and made their way to mulligan's trysting place as usual mulligan and bridgie met and when they parted blake and the constable followed mulligan until the girl was well out of hearing when they called on him to halt at the same time covering him with their automatics mulligan at once stopped and put up his hands but did not speak and while blake continued to cover him the constable searched him for arms blake then ordered mulligan to walk in front of him until they came to a mountain track which was off the road leaving the constable on guard he ordered mulligan to walk up the track in front of him after they had gone on about a hundred yards blake stopped and asked mulligan if he knew that he was liable to be arrested and shot for desertion from the british army and waited to see the effect of his words as the whole success of his plan depended on this by now mulligan had recognized blake's voice and knowing well what would happen to him if he fell into the hands of the military fell on his knees and begged blake to spare him blake at once explained his terms which the boy eagerly accepted thankful to get off at any price though not counting the cost and danger of what he was doing blake's terms were that mulligan should give him information well beforehand of every contemplated outrage in the district and in return promised him on behalf of the british government a free pardon five hundred pounds and a passage for himself and bridgie to any country he wished to go to but not until the Sinn fein movement was crushed in the district as it happened only the evening before bridgie had told patsy that she could not stand the boycott any longer and that if he could not take her away to america at once she would marry mike connolly hence the promise of the five hundred pounds seemed to poor patsy like a gift from heaven it was arranged in order that no suspicion should be drawn down on him that mulligan should leave his letter at night-time when going to meet bridgie o'hara under a certain large stone a few feet from where they were near the point where the track and road met as there was nothing more to settle blake told mulligan to go home at once while he and the constable made their way back to the barracks and the following day blake returned to ballybor at this time blake found that several of his men showed a strong disinclination to leave the barracks and remembering how hard it used to be sometimes during the war to get men who had been stuck in trenches for months to go over the top he decided to organize strong daylight patrols so that each man should leave his barracks for a certain number of hours every day 
In addition to patrols round Ballybor, he sent out a strong patrol on certain days to work its way across country, always by a different route, to Grouse Lodge Barracks, where the patrol spent the night, returning to Ballybor across country the following day. Taking advantage of mistakes made in other parts of the country, he sent no patrols on the main routes, but made them all go cross-country, only using the roads for shorter distances when they were open, and when it was practically impossible to be ambushed. For some time there came no information from Mulligan, and when at last a note was brought from him from Grouse Lodge, it only contained the laconic news that the price for shooting a policeman had gone up from sixty pounds to a hundred pounds, and though no further message came from Mulligan for another ten days, as no outrages had been committed during this time, Blake had no reason to think that he was not fulfilling his part of the bargain. Early one morning a bicycle patrol arrived at Ballybor Barracks from Grouse Lodge, and the constable who had been with Blake the night he met Mulligan handed him a note to the effect that two carloads of arms were to arrive in the Clunala district that night for the purpose of an attack on Grouse Lodge Barracks the following night. Mulligan gave the route the cars would take, but did not state at what hour they might be expected. On looking at an ordnance map, Blake noticed that the cars would have to pass through a small wood, and that the road took a sharp bend where it entered the wood. Taking a leaf out of the Shanfainer's book, he determined to ambush the cars at the bend, and to try and seize cars and arms. The difficulty was to know what to do with the cars once they had gained possession of them. The volunteers would no doubt collect in the Kunala district to take over the arms, hence it would be dangerous to attempt to take them to Grouse Lodge Barracks, which was much the nearer barrack to the proposed scene of the ambush. So in the end he settled, if he came off victorious, to take the cars by by-roads to Ballybor and risk being attacked in the town at night. A few days before this, Blake had received his first batch of black and tans, bringing his force up to a respectable number, so felt quite justified in making the attempt. As soon as it was dark that night, Blake, with five of his men, left Grouse Lodge, and made their way by the starlight across country to the wood. The men brought axes with them, and soon had the road blocked with two small fir trees, after which they took cover on each side of the road and waited. At ten the moon rose and the night still seemed fine, but it was not until after two that they heard the cars approaching. The leading car came round the bend at a good pace, pulling up just clear of the barricade, while the second car, failing to see the obstacle on the road, was unable to pull up in time and ran into the back of the leading car. Blake at once stood up and called on the men, there were two in each car, to put up their hands but for answer they opened fire with automatics in the direction of Blake's voice, whereupon the police fired a volley at the cars, and three of the men were seen to collapse, after which the fourth put up his hands. They found that two of the men were dead, while the third was shot through the chest. After removing all papers and arms from the dead men, they hid their bodies in the wood, removed the trees from the road, and started off to Ballybor, where they arrived without mishap, and soon had the two cars safely in the barrack yard. On investigation they found that the cars contained thirty carbines and rifles, several thousand rounds of ammunition, and two boxes of homemade bombs. This capture had a great effect on the police morale in the district, 
and in fact marked the turning point in the Sinn Féin campaign in that area, while the two captured cars made a welcome addition to the police transport. Shortly afterwards, Blake received a warning from Mulligan to expect an attack on a named night on the barracks at Ballybor, and that an attempt would be made to blow up the gable end of the barracks. The night before the expected attack, Blake brought all the men that could be spared with safety from Grouse Lodge and made his preparations for defense. The attack opened with heavy rifle fire from all the surrounding houses, which drove the unfortunate inhabitants of Ballybor in terror from the town, and after an hour a determined rush was made under heavy covering fire to ram the barrack door, but the fire of the police forced them to drop the ram and run for cover. Only one attempt was made to blow up the gable, the police allowing the attackers to start laying the galignite and then dropping a mills bomb from the window above, where a projecting V-shaped steel shutter had been put up with deadly effect. After this, the attackers kept up an intermittent rifle fire for another two hours, and towards daybreak withdrew, leaving the police victorious, and although several men had been seen to fall during the attempt to ram the door, by the time it was light their bodies had been removed. A subsequent attack on Grouse Lodge barracks was also successfully beaten off without any police casualties, but an attempt Blake made to capture an important volunteer staff officer in the Clunala district one night failed. The bird had flown a quarter of an hour before the patrol surrounded the house where he had been staying. This attempt to seize the staff officer convinced the volunteers that there was a traitor in the district and a volunteer intelligence officer was sent down forthwith from Dublin to investigate. Blake now felt that he was really beginning to break the Sinn Féin in his district, and decided to take the offensive to the full extent of his power. Not only did he have the town and country patrol night and day, but he also sent out parties of black and tans to search houses in the country for suspected stores of arms, and also to try and obtain information by all means in their power. Though at this time the people were beginning to get restive under the Sinn Féin tyranny, yet so great was the terror that not a single person in the whole district dared to give the police one word of information of his own will, and though the information from Mulligan was of vital importance as regards attacks and movements by the volunteers, yet Blake was still in complete ignorance of the names of the most dangerous Sinn Féiners. Blake felt that he was winning, but he knew that there would be no peace or rest in his district until he had arrested the leaders. The others would then be like sheep without a shepherd. To this end, an interview with Mulligan was necessary in order to get from him the names of these leaders. This time Blake waylaid Mulligan as he was going to meet Bridgie O'Hara, and at once saw that the boy's nerve was fast breaking. Mulligan gave him the names and addresses he wanted, readily enough, and then implored Blake to have him arrested at once and taken to a place of safety, as he was in terror of his life. He told Blake that the volunteers were already suspicious of him, and that an intelligence officer had been especially sent down from Dublin to watch him and report on the leakage of information, and that he could not stick it any longer. Blake, knowing that once Mulligan was removed he would not get any information at all, managed after a long argument to persuade him to carry on a little longer by promising to arrest him when the other leaders were taken. 
after parting from blake the unhappy mulligan met his girl who by this time was half mad from the misery of the boycott of her family in despair she told him she had made up her mind to marry connolly and they would sail for america as soon as they could get passports patsy at the end of his tether and racked with terror implored her to wait a little longer saying that very soon he would have five hundred pounds and directly he got the money he would take her away the girl went home in the seventh heaven of delight forgot all about the promise of silence she had made to patsy and told her mother who of course told her husband and it was not many days before the good news was common property in the district a few days afterwards the intelligence officer returned to his hq's his mission was fulfilled having got the ringleader's names blake at once set about his plans for arresting them realizing that not until they were safe under lock and key could he truthfully say he had won but it is one thing to arrest two or three men and quite a different story to arrest thirty or forty as if not all arrested at the same time the majority would get warning and disappear on the run once again blake met mulligan at night and arranged with him to call a meeting of the ringleaders the following sunday at early mass outside a wayside chapel in the clunala district when he proposed to arrest them and promised mulligan he would be separated from the others at once and conveyed to england on a destroyer at first mulligan refused being now demented with the fear of assassination but when promised the payment of the five hundred pounds on his arrival in england he consented blake arranged that on the following sunday morning as many men as could be spared should be sent from grouse lodge and ballybor barracks to meet near the clunala chapel at the same time when he hoped to surround the crowd and make the arrests without any difficulty on a typical soft irish morning blake and his men set out early from ballybor barracks on their drive to the chapel full of hope that the day's work would clinch his victory and that then he would apply for leave as the strain of the last few months was beginning to tell on him and he needed a rest badly when the crosley was within half a mile of the chapel and still out of view from there blake stopped the car got out his men and proceeded to surround the chapel while blake himself advanced alone towards the chapel gates when he drew near he could see that the road in front of the gates was a mass of country people who did not move until blake got close to them when they divided forming a lane towards the gates and to his last day blake will never forget the sight which met his eyes as he advanced through the people in a deathly silence lashed to one of the pillars of the chapel gates was the body of the unfortunate patsy mulligan with two bullet holes through his forehead and penned on his chest a sheet of white paper bearing the single word traitor while at his feet lay poor bridgie o'hara her body heaving with sobs and her long dark hair which had been cut off lying on the ground beside her End of chapter one